There's this common phrase which says that we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. The idea of it is nice, but if you're stepping beyond your comfort zone by the very nature, it's going to be uncomfortable, right? It doesn't matter how many times you do that, it's going to feel uncomfortable. And so I don't think we can get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I'm learning and I'm learning to be uh, create space for the leaders that I work with to learn to, instead of react, to just slow down a little bit and create space for the new that might be emerging. Start to recognize the discomfort as like a leading indicator that not that we're going in the wrong direction, but that if I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable, I'm probably moving in the right direction. Pete Isaiah is a trauma therapist and integration coach, supporting individuals and couples to become their most empowered and courageous, authentic selves. This podcast features inspiring conversations with graduates of Pete's shadow work courses and deep dives with experts in the arena of alternative health and current affairs. Here, we're not victims, we're volunteers. Are you in? My guest today is an Olympic and leadership coach, a best-selling author, international keynote speaker, corporate advisor on high performance, and a facilitator of possibility. His hobbies include beekeeping, surfing, free diving, and whale encounters. He's a husband to Ash and father to Josh, a published music producer, and a great neighbor. Welcome, Chip Richards. Thanks, Pete. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to hear. And you didn't have to come far to be here. It was a short commute. <laughs> yeah, I was running a little bit late, and so I was 30 seconds late. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't blame the traffic. No, that's right. <laughs> Except uh, for the B traffic, there is some of that. There was. Yeah. And when I say you're a great neighbor, we're actually physical neighbors. We, we live across the road from each other. Yeah. How awesome. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, it's been awesome to, to meet you and I've known you for a while now and something about you that's really quite um, charismatic and magnetic and I feel this, you know, this friendship building between us and you're already introducing me to things that are blowing my mind and every mm. time we have a conversation and encounter, I'm left a bit mind blown. So hopefully we'll be, have our minds blown today. <laughs> I feel the same about you, so looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, so um, I just thought we could possibly start off, um, I, I know a lot of people do know you, but some of my audience might not, and so, um, and I'm going to get some of this wrong because I don't know your full history, but I do know that you were training as part of the Olympic ski team, and that you were an elite athlete, and that you had some injuries, and I believe you blew out one knee, and, and then possibly the other one as well, and that at some point it became clear that your career as an elite athlete was possibly over and then that somehow transitioned into you becoming the coach hmm. or a coach of the, of the Olympic ski team and possibly America, or I'll let you go into that, or Australian yeah. ski team. And so the transition from athlete to coach. But also um, I'd like to hear a little bit about how you overcome adversity so if you could maybe start there or... Yeah. Yeah. It's a big open question. <laughs> uh, great. Well, yeah, so I grew up in the mountains of Colorado and youngest of three brothers and, you know, lots of adventure in our life, but probably the arena that I learned the most about myself and 
human possibility was in the realms of freestyle skiing. So I was a competitive freestyle skier. And I think, I think at like age 12, when uh, they first made the announcement that the sport of freestyle was going to be in the Olympics, I just kind of like, I can remember storming into my kitchen, uh, you know, during dessert time and saying, I'm going to the Olympics, you know, and everybody's kind of looking at me going, yeah, okay, good luck with that. But it was, it was really a deep calling. You know, I just, I just absolutely loved the sport and uh, this sort of combination of it's kind of daily stretching beyond your limits and, and the fun involved in that uh, was, yeah, super powerful for me growing up. And so I, I was well and truly on that path. And I guess by the time I was sort of 19, I was, um, and 20, I was sort of ranked number one in the U.S. for the sport and um, as a combined skier at the time with a real passion for moguls. And, uh, and as you said, I had basically two seasons in a row. The, f- the first season, um, I just about a week before the big World Cup qualifying event that year, I, I landed a jump. It wasn't uh, like a dramatic fall or anything cool about it. I just landed just like I'd landed, you know, 10,000 other jumps. But on this particular occasion, I felt really strong pain go up through the left-hand side of my body and sort of explode my left knee. And so I went through the whole process of, you know, surgery and, um, you know, reconstruction and learning how to walk and move and ski again and came back the following year and, and somehow regained my ranking. And then similar time the following year, slightly different situation, but the last jump of a, of a, of a big event um, I just took kind of one step further up the in run to go a little bit higher and a little bit faster. And I kind of out jumped the landing hill and, uh, and basically exploded my right hand, my right knee. And so I uh, did the same process of reconstructive surgery and kind of recovery and just went after it. I just thought, oh, this is just another obstacle in the road. And, you know, I was very determined and my, surgeon actually stopped me I guess in our last appointment together when he was checking to make sure I was strong again he said you know look you're you're strong you're you're stronger than you were when I met you actually but uh so you have my blessing and you need to know that the nature of the way you're going at this sport uh you're going to be back to see me again if you keep going at this pace and 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 I can't guarantee that it will be at a time or or way of your choosing and I think the first two had been so um, such a radical like disruption and massive just uh, crisis for me on a, on a few levels that his words were just enough to have me pause for a moment. And, and in that pause, my coach at the time said, why don't you coach with me for a season and then you can come back next year and compete. Uh, you can just you just stay close to the fire without getting burned. We can train really hard, but you don't need to perform. You can just you know just train, and then you come back to competing next year. And so that's how I s- started my coaching, um, really with the intention of having it be one step, you know, the next step to my Olympic dream. And um, but literally about three hours into our first day, I started to feel a shift happen inside of me where I really felt all the pain and the angst of, of kind of losing my dream in a way started to fall away. And I started to feel this real feeling of kind of coming home. Like I just felt, wow, this, I'd worked really hard to be an athlete, 
but there was something about the coaching that just felt really natural. So yeah, I just, I just lightly leaned into it and, 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 and every kind of step I took in that direction, just the path seemed to open. And yeah, within a couple of years, I was, I was down here in Australia, uh, coaching the Australian Olympic program. So, wow. um, yeah, which I thought was going to be a six month adventure just to come down and, you know, work with the Aussies for a few months. And, uh, it's now 29 years later, I'm still here. And, uh, so it's, uh, I can look back at that time and see the poetry in a way of those injuries and how they kind of shifted, you know, they, they created such a strong shift in my path. And I think that's the strength of like the disruption was required for me to actually change my path, but it opened up something way, way greater for me. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so my question was a little bit around adversity and, you know, you could look at it as an adversity, but really it could be a blessing in disguise. And it sounds like it is. And that you were, you thought you were heading on one path and then life had a different plan for you. But life's plan seems to be every bit as amazing as, as the other plan. And so, did you, um, just a quick question around, did you take the Australian uh, ski team to the Olympics as I a did. coach? Oh, I you did. did. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah, I did. Uh, so kind of about one Olympic cycle after the, the Olympics that I had kind of targeted as an athlete. And it was, uh, it was really beautiful to kind of have that dream fulfilled, but in a way that was um, different than I ever would have imagined, you know. And, and with it, by then I was... Um, married to my wife Ash, and you know, had started a whole life, uh, you know, out of out of out of the ashes of what had been an injury. So, it's yeah, it's it's inter it's interesting that I mean, when you come back to the question around adversity, it's interesting how often I, I can probably see patterns of you know, the, the determination that I had as an athlete, I, I see show up in other areas of my life. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll push or I'll drive with so much commitment towards something mm -hmm. and that I might, I might drive past some of the early whispers of my intuition to, to take a different path or to, or to, you know, open my perspective to, a, you know, a different way. But then ultimately often my body or something will, will create a strong enough interruption that seems like adversity but in my experience adversity it's almost always a, like a redirecting mm. or a, if it is direct adversity it's like a pushing back to cause me to build more resolve and that resolve is what's needed on the path ahead so the adversity isn't appreciated in the moment but then when i'm moving 10 steps down the road i go oh wow i needed that because mm. it actually built up this fitness to be able to go the distance <laughs> so yeah, every crisis is really an opportunity in, in disguise. Uh, mm. And I don't think sometimes we're smart enough to know in the moment whether things that are happening to us are bad for us or good yeah. for us. And only, you know, looking back, you know, retrograde, can you see whether it was, you know, served you or not? And it sounds mm. like you're really happy with the, the, the path and plan that life has had for you. So much, yeah. so much. But I, I think to, to your point, and I'm sure you see this ton in your work, and my in my work as a coach, when I see uh, an athlete or a leader hitting a you know space of real deep challenge, for me, I smile. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. You know, <laughs> great things are emerging here. And for them, it might feel like a total crisis. Uh, 
So it's easier to see from a one, one degree removed, you know, as a coach or an advisor, you know, I'm sure you see this all the time in your work that, wow, as someone's hitting a deep place within themselves, that's making them go, wow, I, I need to run the other way. You're going actually just one more step forward and you're in the heart of the matter. Well, you're really speaking to an aspect of my coaching that I, I've kind of known, but I like the way you articulated it is that that's true. Like uh, when I'm coaching clients and we coach, we have different ways of coaching and um, but I'm sure there's some also some similarities and overlap. But that is one thing that when I'm seeing the client in front of me really stretched mm. and at the edge, about to have their breakthrough, like that really juices me up for some reason. Yeah, it's a part of who I am. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. I'm <laughs> right there with you. And it's I mean I I would imagine that you, I, what I one of the things I love, uh, and this is maybe leaping forward, but in the current work that I do, because it's in different arenas. Um, with you know different industries and different areas and different cultures and different people different walks of life but there's sort of some common human threads and so you can start to see that whatever the external story that's playing out no matter what it is i'm building a business or i'm you know whatever expanding my team or or you know going for a new social enterprise whatever is happening on the outside in a way it's almost just what's needed as a catalyst to create the growth that's needed on the inside. And that's the real thing, you know, is that's the thing that lasts in the end anyway, is, is the growth of the human. So. So it's like the, your, sounds like you're passionate about human growth potential and that, and that you're seeing that there are some common threads that are the architecture of that human growth potential that can be applied regardless of the setting or the culture or the mission is that yeah and i would say so much so that and for me what i i find myself less and less interested in the in what's happening on the outside whether they made their budget or whether they grew you know and more and more what's the through line of growth that's happening because if the humans are growing then it's inevitable that that whatever they're doing is going to expand in, in proportion and and maybe maybe the thing that they think they're doing which is so important is is actually just the whole purpose of the thing is to grow them. You know, I think we don't often, you know, we think it's all about the thing we're trying to achieve, but maybe it's the thing is working us. Yeah. I, I, um, one of the things I like about being a coach is who I have to become in order to be the person that someone's going to come and seek mm -hmm. coaching from. And so um, I do like that aspect because it pushes me at my growth edge. So, um, so from your observations in working with teams of people, corporations, individuals, you're fascinated about this growth and transformation that's happening within the individuals or the team. What, what um, are one or two observations that you think are unique to you that you've observed, if you can articulate one or two things that you see co a commonality in your work? If you can understand the question. Say the question again. Yeah, so... So you're fascinated by human, what's happening inside the human being as they're growing and who they're becoming and that you've noticed that there are some commonalities mm. in, in terms of regardless of the team, the mission, the culture and you've probably identified or distilled down a few unique observations that may be unique to Chip Richards and no one else has seen before or maybe not. But So what are a couple of observations that you've picked up on that's happening in people when they're growing like what's what is happening mm. yeah that's great uh it's again it's a big question 
well, one, one, one thing that's showing up a lot, I would say, in the current field of play that I find myself in is there's this common phrase which says that we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable or something as leaders that, you know, that we're, that we're, if you're trying to do something new, uh, if you're going be, if you, if you committed to going beyond what you or we did previously, that it, you're going to have to hit the edge of what's comfortable to you and then go out into that space that's unknown and that, you know, that this notion that we have to get comfortable with that. And I love the idea of it, but what I've realized is that um, the idea of it is nice, but if you're stepping beyond your comfort zone by the very nature, it's going to be uncomfortable, right? It doesn't matter how many times you do that, it's going to feel uncomfortable. And so I don't think we can get comfortable with being uncomfortable mm. because it always feels uncomfortable, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that's what it is. By definition. Um, but what I'm noticing in a lot of the people that I work with, and I would say it's, I also see it in myself is when I hit that edge of the known for me that might bring up, uh, you know, kind of survival instincts like, Ooh, this is, there's something wrong here. Uh, I'm, I'm learning and I'm learning to be uh, create space for the leaders that I work with to learn to, instead of react to just slow down a little bit and, and, and create space for the new that might be emerging and sort of in a way to start to recognize the discomfort as like a leading indicator that not that we're going in the wrong direction, but that if I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable, um, I'm probably moving in the right direction and it might not ever feel comfortable, but if I can recognize that I'm moving into into fresh territory and if my sort of inner compass is lined up well then i can trust that discomfort a little and just take a step and take a breath and get um used to it maybe or tolerate it take another deep breath and then take another step and so that, that there's a there's there's something around that which is which is current i'm noticing a lot i think because a lot of the different industries and systems that we're operating in or have been operating in for quite a long time are experiencing different levels of breaking down. And so there is a lot of the tried and true ways that we've been doing business for a long time just aren't resonating for people. And so they're hitting the edge of the known field and, and they're having to step out. And so for me, I'm, I, I think it's where we belong right now. We need to be out there. And if we're not feeling a little bit edgy, then we're probably not, we're probably just kind of repeating what we've always done. And so as a coach, being able to spot that moment and, and create enough intrinsic kind of uh, space. So the person feels like I can sit in this unknown space for a moment and, and, and be present to what's emerging as opposed to making up stories about it in my mind. Wow. Wow, so much came out of that. That's uh, that's amazing, uh, beautifully articulated. I'm glad I asked that exact question because what I'm you know thinking from an audience point of view, listening to that is that because I'm sure some of our audience are, are feeling discomfort, mm. and I think on some level we all get to experience discomfort, and particularly in these you know modern times. When I say you know modern times, last three or four years, there's been yeah. a lot going on in terms of systems breaking down, like you said. And, you know, in my coaching practice, everyone I talk to is like, you know, struggling and, you know, mental health problems and real conflict going on. And so I guess what I heard in that, 
that's positive for, for the audience is that if you're experiencing discomfort, it's not that something's wrong. Mm. It's, that it's, it's the edge and that just beyond that discomfort, if you can sit with it long enough and relax into it, that something's being birthed or something more beautiful is emerging on the other side of it. And so, and I, I, and I get the conversation you started with her, how in the industry that growth only happens outside your comfort zone. And um, so another quick question on that topic is, is it, is it possible to grow while you're comfortable? Or, or because I, I don't want to make it be that I have to be yeah. uncomfortable to have something positive transformation. Is it possible that I could have a positive transformation while being comfortable? Yeah, it's a great, I love that question. Uh, and I would say there's a, I would say that the way to think about it, or maybe the way I think about it now that I'm looking at it is kind of as a spectrum, right? And it's easy to think it's black or white. I'm either comfortable or I'm not comfortable, right? right? But that actually there's a million stops along the way. And, uh, and like radical discomfort for me was having my uh, knees explode in order to create the shift and the new story that wanted to emerge through me. That was radical discomfort. Mm -hmm. And I would say the reason it was that radical was because I ignored the quiet whispers that would have been a lot more comfortable had I listened a bit earlier and gone, you know what, I'm feeling like maybe I need to take the day off today instead of having all the pressure of my sponsors and my coaches and my family saying, you better go, go, go. I mean, they never said that, but the feeling of that, um, uh, you know, overriding any intuitive impulse to take a breather, you know, um, maybe, maybe I wouldn't have exploded those knees, right? Um, or if I would have kind of just tuned in and thought, wow, interesting. I notice how much I'm loving being the, the captain of this team and my kind of natural coaching role that's emerging as I'm an athlete. Maybe I'll just lean a little bit more into that. You know, what I notice for myself is looking for the early signals of the edge now and, and kind of recognizing that change or transformation can happen in a really gentle way. And it doesn't need to be like this radical break from what we've always done or like a huge departure. Sometimes maybe that's required. For me, I was stubborn, so it was needed. Like I needed the, the mallet on the knees <laughs> to like break that, that, that direction or just change it. Um, but I do believe we can, we can move in a much more harmonious way through transformation. It'll, and, and my sense is there'll always be elements of, ooh, that's a bit new and, whoa, that's a bit... Like, I've never been here before, so that feels a bit uncomfortable, but it doesn't need to be painful. It can be, I think it can be magical, actually. And so one of the things you spoke to then is that, and I, if I got this right, is there is this thing, like, if you really want a goal, you've got to push hard for it and become, like, hyper-focused. Because mm. I've got this goal and this target I want to hit. But if I'm overly hyper-focused and too stubborn and too driven that I might be missing some subtler nuanced things that like you call them whispers. Mm. And so I'm, I'm hearing because, you know, um, some people like super push themselves and then you can push yourself too far. And that may be possibly what happened for you is that you weren't listening to, like you say, take the day off. You don't need to push this hard mm. and in not listening to that and pushing harder. You have this adverse event. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, because I've 
I've got that collapsed with no. I need to be hyper focused uh. and pushing. And if I'm not pushing and hyper focused, I'm not doing it the right way. Yeah. And now I'm hearing that no, you can do two things simultaneously. You can be hyper focused mm-hmm. and committed and disciplined in in your work, but also allow some time and some space to check in mm. and listen for the whispers. Mm. Yeah, I think that's you've said it beautifully. Uh, Interestingly, and I know this is something we wanted to talk about, so I might just bring it in now. Mm. I was recently in the kingdom of Tonga where I once a year bring a group of leaders to go and swim with humpback whales for a week. And it's, uh, I mean, in and of itself, just being in the kingdom of Tonga and out there in sort of thousand meter deep water, these tiny little islands and a tiny little boat you know, looking to have encounters with whales, that alone is is massive, but inside of the context of leadership and sort of purpose, it becomes a really incredible context and backdrop to to be exploring ourselves and how we how we work and how we move together. And the, there was a lesson this year that really hit really strong for the group, which speaks which kind of demonstrates exactly what you were talking about. Um and so it it takes immense commitment to go there, right? It, like it takes a couple of days to get there and you got to kind of, you know, leave what you're doing and you got to, you know, you got to be willing to go and have this adventure. And so, and a lot of people by, I don't know, people that went this year, people that go normally, you know, they're, they're leading their companies, they're leading teams, they're sort of, I don't know. I don't know if I don't really know what it means by saying type A, but like you know, just like they they are people that are driven and and achieve things in that kind of out external way, and that's an element that's needed to kind of get them in out there and into the water. But if that energy is all they bring, and they jump in the water and swim out to go see the whales, um, that you know, whales are huge, as you know and uh, massively powerful, as you know, but they're also super sensitive. And so they can feel the energy of a group of three or four swimmers that are moving at pace towards them, uh, even, you know, from two or 300 meters away, and the whale will just take a deep breath and go under and disappear. And it's a really interesting process for uh, high-achieving individuals to be confronted with, oh, I can't just make this happen. And it doesn't matter how fast I swim. There's no way I can keep up with the whales if the whale doesn't want to connect. And so over the eight-day period, these kind of layers of uh, ambition start to shave off. And two things happen. You know, so there's no, there's no less commitment, but the, but the way people start to show up starts to just, like the edges start to round out and soften and the first thing they realize is well we really we're much better if we stay together and so rather than having the high achievers swim out as fast as they can and the guys that haven't swum in 25 years are just back at the boat choking on their mask and snorkel they slow down and they realize the whales aren't gonna aren't gonna want to connect with us if we're all scattered if we're moving at different paces, it just kind of stresses them out. And so we're better to stay together and move slow and meet the whales where, where they are. And, and, and it's amazing what happens is as, as they combine their commitment to being there with a more uh, in tune sense of connection with each other, 
acceptance, like just like surrender to however things unfold, less ambition, less pushing over the eight days, it goes from them trying to go and see the whale to the whales coming to the group. And, and it's, it's one of the most powerful things to witness and to be part of, but for, for people to recognize that, oh, wow, actually, if I just, if I just really slow down and center myself, this thing which I otherwise would think I needed to chase will actually come to me. <laughs> and so it's, it's a little like it's, I don't know how we hold that day to day in that way, but it, it, th- that was my biggest takeaway this year from Tonga. I was like, wow, we have to find this beautiful way of weaving the, the power of commitment with total surrender. And then the whales come to us. I love it. I love it. Um, I, 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 one thing I've noticed about you is that you are an astute observer of nature and i noticed how you because you are an observer and maybe this openness to you is that you're able to glean lessons from nature and incorporate them into your understanding of your you know human potential and your coaching um so i uh, i'm also we share that passion i've swum with humpbacks and and uh yeah are mind-blowing and i believe their hearts uh, I don't know, like the size of a television set or something like that. So they have this electromagnetic field, and I got up very close, close enough to eyeball one, yeah. and I felt the ele- electromagnetic force of its heart impact my heart. Uh. And I haven't been the same since. And one of my favourite things to do is go go sailing with the uh, with the humpbacks. Um, yes. Um, so there was something else I oh, there's something else I wanted to say about that too in terms of that hyper competitive driven type personality and um, from psychology there's this thing called social styles and there's four social styles and the way they um, categorize your social style is they look at one axis is how competitive you are versus how cooperative you are and you can measure that through doing psychometrics I'm hyper competitive or I'm hyper cooperative mm. or somewhere in between and uh, then they also look at um, emotive, how emotive you are. But in terms of that competition versus cooperation, that's what I was the conversation I was hearing in that if I go chase these whales and I want to be the first one to get there, I'm hyper-competitive, but I may be pushing away what I really want. Mm. And then you, you anticipated that if you did it together as a group, and that's more a cooperative approach. And so I think both of those approaches are equally powerful, mm. like complete hyper-competitiveness or incredible amount of cooperation. And that's, that's one of the balances that that's, seems to be showing up in the world today in global events is this like divisiveness, mm. which is hyper-competitive and tribalism versus cooperation and, and unity. And I think we can achieve lots by finding a balance between those two forces, cooperation and competition. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's almost like as I'm listening to you talk about it, it's, yeah, they're both, they're sort of different sides of the same spectrum. And there's moments when each are needed. Yeah. Right? There's moments when, as individuals, we need to stand for something so immovably and so deeply that it doesn't matter what's in our way it doesn't matter what other people are saying there's no time to wait for other people to get it we have to take steps in that you know we have to move and there's and there's moments when that's the real power like that's our greatest power and then there's moments when it's the opposite where it doesn't matter how much we want it as an individual if we're not 
if I'm not connecting with you, we're never going to achieve what we came here to do. And uh, I think that finding the rhythm and finding when, when to be where is probably the, probably the dance. Yeah, and I am from my – so I, I, I was an emergency nurse and I worked in emergency rooms and I want to speak to this like gap. So if we're hyper-focused and hyper-competitive and we don't leave this little gap for observation of the nuanced stuff, we might miss something. And I was working a busy night shift in an, an emergency department and uh, I was part of a trauma team and a trauma team like there's several doctors, emergency doctors – there's the trauma surgeon who's leading the whole team. There's a team of nurses. There's the radiographer. There's the pharmacologist. There's a respiratory person. And so this is for a multi-trauma person coming into the emergency room. There's a whole team. And uh, I was standing there one night and one of these cases came in, at, you know, probably 2 o'clock in the morning, and the trauma surgeon was there and he's the highest paid guy in that room. And I watched him. And I observed him for the whole thing and he did nothing. So he was the highest paid guy and did the least observable work. Mm. Everyone else is rushing around, you know, putting tubes in and IVs and taking vital signs and putting intercostal catheters into the lungs. And it's hyper, like, it's a team of people working. Uh, and he's just sitting back. And afterwards, I went up to him. I said, look, I just observed something and I just want to pick your brain. Like, uh, what can... You, what can you tell me about your approach to what just happened? And he said, well, look, I've, I've learned something over, the, you know, over my career. He said, in case of emergency, immediately do nothing, hmm. which sounds kind of counterintuitive. I says, oh, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, somebody's just got to sit back and watch because if you rush in and get super busy, you're going to miss something. Hmm. And it's that thing that you miss that's really important. So he says, my job is to let everybody else do the doing. And they've all got those skills and they're highly trained in what they're doing. But my role is to sit back and observe for the one thing that they might miss mm. and then just pick them up on that thing. And so I use that analogy in my coaching practice when people come in and they're like in this crisis and they're like, what do I do? What do I do? And I just remind them like, you know, in moments of crisis, immediately do nothing. Just create a gap. Listen to those whispers. And, you know, maybe this crisis is your opportunity. Beautiful. I love that. I love that. It's, uh, it reminds me of a, a Nigerian proverb that I heard, which I really like, and I, sh and I uh, share with a lot of the leaders that I work with. Is, uh, it says, I think it says, uh, times are urgent, let us slow down. <laughs> yes. Right? Similar. And it's interesting. It's, yeah, it's interesting our, comp our compelling uh, compulsion to do and and to reckon, you know, to think that the, you know that the solution is in the doing and 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 there are aspects of doing which are so required right but i i love his perspective and his willingness to kind of restrain and kind of keep that sort of balcony view of everything that was going on beautiful it's more in the being often and i've learned this as i've matured and gotten older because when you're younger it's all about the doing and do 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 and then as i've matured i'm like no it's, a lot of it's got to do with how i'm being and like I like just that's what I observed with this trauma surgeon. It was how he was being. He was just calm, and it was in his calm being that provide. He didn't have to do anything to have the most value in the room. It was just in his being. It's really powerful. I I think to one distinguish the power of being, and then also to recognize that even in the power of being, he could. I'm sure he could be there in the room 
with everybody just being, but he could also be an, a presence which is causing stress and strain by the way he's showing up and being, you know, and, and is, I, I'm just thinking about some of the leaders that I work with in places where they talk a lot about the importance of leaders being present and being visible. And this is really true, you know, being out there with their teams and connected with their teams. And this is super true. And they can be out there connected with their teams and causing tons of stress with their presence of being. So one of the traits, coming back to your original question that I notice the most important among all the, the leaders that I work with is a recognition and a sense of personal responsibility about their own state of being and recognizing that how they show up, not just what they do and not just what they say, but actually how, how the state of being that they're in when they are present with people has a massive impact on everything that they're aiming to achieve with the, with the teams that they're working with. And so doing whatever that they need to do to get themselves into a good state of being is like number for number one priority, number one responsibility, that one, their presence is important, so that surgeon's presence was super key, but him being lined up and conscious of how he was being in that room was, was pro- and, and, and doing whatever he needed to so that he could show up in that room and be that, that sort of force of calm, that's the practice right there, right? Yeah, and so it's a focus, it's a shift from doing to being, and how he was being was, and I take your point, he was being present. Mm. His presence was palpable. There's nothing more powerful, I think, in the masculine than presence. Mm. I think for the feminine, it's more radiance, but for like a man in his element, he's hyper present, and then he he did he was being calm, and I'd say he was being focused. So his ways of being, he was present, calm, and focused. I didn't see him do anything. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, and so, um, and so you're noticing this, and this is some of the coaching that you give to your the leaders of teams. Is that it's not necessarily about what you're doing, but how you're being, and so you're observing for how they're being with their team, and when, and this comes from ontology. Ontology is the study of being. Ontos means being. So there's a whole study of being, and we are human beings. So. And I'm, and I'm learning from this conversation as I'm saying it because I, I lead a small team at the moment in, in my company and I'm already aware, although not maybe as aware of, as I could be, as to how I'm being is going to really um, have the, the most impact than really than what I'm doing. And I know I do need to do some things with my team, but I also I want to be, I'm going to be more hyper-focused on how I'm being with my team because yeah, this conversation is... Um, yeah, moving me in that direction more. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I, I think it's. I think it's super key. Uh, and 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 I think I think it's really easy to underestimate how how the way we show up, how it impacts people. Mm-hmm. And you know, my yeah, my so my number. You know, if I am meeting with a manager, a manager, you know, you know that that word it's always really annoys me. But uh, but you know, like there's this sort of notion that as a manager, I'm managing people. And the first real distinction I will almost always make with the leaders that I work with who are trying to be better managers is, well, okay, great. What are you doing to manage yourself? You know, how do you, how do you manage your own self and your own state of being so that when you're working with your people, they're getting the best of you. They're not getting stressed out, stretched, fragmented you. 
just leaking your stress on them, they're getting you at your best. And so it's kind of creating space for them to, to bring their best. I love that because I've had it collapsed that a manager, what he's doing is managing teams and managing people. And you're taking it one step, half a step back and saying, well, sure, you are doing that, but are you managing yourself as you're managing them? And then so that you shift their focus onto that and then – then it would, the questions for me would be, well, yeah, how are you being while you're managing these people? You know, Boom. Hey, love yeah, it. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Um, so I w- we'll come back to leadership, but I, there was one other question I had around, uh, I guess, performance. And, and it's just because I'm curious about it and I don't know the answer. So what's the distinction or difference between training and performing? And is there a distinction and when you're about to perform, do you need to let go of your training in, in order to step into the performing? That's great. That's a great question. Probably depends on the field of play, right? Uh, so, you know, in the sport that I was in, there was a very different, very distinct difference between, you know, the work that you did as a, tr- you know, to train over days or weeks or months, and then the very specific 30 seconds that you had to perform, and kind of try to focus all of that training into one exp- one clear focused expression of it. Uh, it. But how we manage that transition is an interesting one. And uh, there's different philosophies, right? I think, I think when I was growing up and, you know, like if you talk to some like long distance runners, for example, or ultra ultra marathoners, the way they train is, you know, th- there's no way I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that world that well, but um in talking to those that I do know, they, if I'm going to do a 100-mile race, I'm not going to do a whole bunch of 100-mile runs to train for it. You know, that will destroy my body in the process of getting ready. So they have this way of kind of preparing their body to then, on the day, go beyond what they've ever gone to before, you know, right? So they're kind of like prime their body to then go, in, go into the unknown levels of exertion, that's interesting, you know, and I think when, if I think back to when I was an athlete, I think I kind of did that. I think I always had this expectation that I'm going to train and then on the performance day, I'm going to like perform out of my skin. I'm going to go beyond. I don't think that was the best strategy at the time because I think what that did was it like put extra pressure in, in the sport that I did as an endurance athlete, probably the right way to keep your nervous system and molecular structure in place is don't overdo it but i think as a kind of a you know competitor in and in the sport that i was in training training underneath the level that i wanted to perform at was putting a lot of pressure on how do i how do i fill that gap on the on game day and i've since worked with a lot of coaches in that space and some will say they train their athletes to like a hundred and 10% or 120% and then they ask them to compete at 80 oh. and that their, their, their role as a coach is to get so that their athletes 80% is better than everyone else's 100%. And so that's a very different, that's a kind of an extreme approach, right? So uh, those are kind of that's two ends of the spectrum. One would say, you know, don't overtrain and, you know, and, and then create space to step into on the day. Others would say, train the shit out of it and then back it off on game day. Really interesting. I guess if I think about it currently for myself in the areas where I 
need to perform, let's say it's a talk or a workshop or something like that, um, I think for me, the, the difference between the preparation and the execution is, well, it's, it's found in the state of, in the space of being, right? So I, I find what I do is in the preparation phase, I do enough, there's enough rigor that I think the old, the one of the most important keys for me is that when I enter into the execution space, I don't have a lot going on in my mind. I've kind of done enough to put my mind at rest and then I can just, and then I can bring the preparation, but I can be really present and able to dance with what emerges. And, and I think that's it for, for me in this stage in my life. Anyway, that's something I really love to explore is, you know, what, what, what do I need to do so that I can enter this field of play and just be really open to what wants to emerge. And, and, and especially if it's something I never could have imagined. Right. <laughs> it's that, this is that thing you, you said that you are a facilitator of possibility. Yeah. And so the training is the practice and the preparation and it's repetitive and maybe you're, you know, getting certain neural pathways or neuromuscular pathways trained and that you need that, you need preparation. But then at the performance level, some, because there's this thing, the zone, mm. that people, I've been in the zone before. For sure. So people who perform enter a zone where they're, they're not even thinking about their training or anything. It's like in that you're in the moment and you're present and you're open to possibility and things just open up. So I guess, yeah, we kind of nailed the distinction between the two, the training and, and the performance. And the, the performance is doing all the training and prep, resting the mind. So I know I've done my prep, so I don't have to be worried. And I'm going to go into this space of possibility, knowing that I'm prepared for it. And then allow things to emerge and, and to play in that space. Mm. And in that playing, we the, I played um, AFL football, not at AFL level, you're American, so you guys play gridiron, but you've probably watched some AFL. For sure. Yeah, and one of the concerns I have about the level to which these guys push themselves, um, so a lot of the, the hyper-elite guys, they've had two dozen surgeries by the time they're 28. Like some of them have had half a dozen shoulder recons and knees, and they're just, yeah. they're just devastating their bodies. And, you know, like at what, at what point... Do you draw the line? And, you know, in, in American football, there's a lot of padding and, you know, um, helmets and things. And these just guys just go out there bare-knuckling. I know. It's madness. And, and do, you have a, do you have a comment on that? Like that – because that, that, you talked about type A, hyper-driven, hyper-focused people. And there's just going to be people that are temperamentally built that way. Hmm. And I, I guess maybe in American football, they've gotten smart and thought, well, we also need to protect these beings from – overdoing it and harming themselves and and you've had these kind of injuries and surgeries so for me it's like and maybe maybe the marketplace or if, if that's the right word sets its own lines and its own parameters and maybe it's up for each individual to decide what level of sacrifice on his body is he willing to make to perform at that level that juices him up i don't even know what my question is in that <laughs> yeah that's i mean i think it's really really interesting just to hear you uh riff on that a little bit and i i think i mean what one of the gifts that the sporting realm gives us and i think it's probably why we why people watch it and why 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 the system is set up to pay people you know ridiculous amounts and all that and we glorify it is i do think that the sporting realm across the board you know not just in kind of traditional 
sports like football or whatever, but, you know, climbing or whatever else or surfing, they, they're like really compressed forms of access to a part of ourselves that we know we came here to experience. And whether, and, and I think, you know, some of our modern kind of phraseology around it is the zone or flow or, but those, those feelings can be felt in any encounter. You know, you can, I'm sure you have that in the garden or when you're, you know, like what, you know, when you're doing whatever it is that you love to do, we can drop into that space. And I think there's, I think, so there's that, that connection to kind of flow. And then there's also the going beyond what was perceived as possible and those two things, I mean, my belief is is that you know we're we massively underestimate what what we're who we are and what we're capable of, and so one of the gifts of life is to kind of give ourselves the opportunities to to experience our our wider capacities. And I think sport gives us these like really compressed versions of that. And so when we're watching sport and seeing see someone break a record or go beyond. It somehow it like triggers some, you know, synapses in our own mind that says, "Oh, wow, that's possible there." You know, that must be possible here. You know, I, I, my, my, my hope, right? And, and I think, but I think when you're in that space, it's also highly addictive. And when you're, you know, when when you're when you're getting these massive whatever hits dopamine or whatever you get from from being deep inside a thirty foot wave or whatever it is that's it's a it's like exposure to a, an expanded state of consciousness right and so i think it's it's can be very infectious and it's probably why people continue to go way beyond what their body's capable of because of partly because of that because they're touching a part of human potential which is very rare and unique and they feel it in those peak moments um yeah yeah, peak experiences or transcendence, like I've gone beyond the known possibility. Now, I don't know if they've done studies on this, but it'd be interesting because you mentioned maybe dopamine, maybe it's the reward mm. and maybe it's not. And how would you, like if a sport elite athlete's in a peak moment, it might only last two seconds yeah. when they hit nails that high jump or something. And it's not like you're going to have them connected up to functional MRI scans and being taking their blood levels. At, like, is it possible for us to even you know, do a scientific study, go, what is it that's happening in the brain yeah. that's transcendent, that's causing, it's probably got nothing to do with blood chemistry or, you know, mm. the, the mechanisms of neural pathways and things. It's probably something beyond that. Yeah, great. Right. Yeah, and I, and maybe we'll never know because that would be a very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and then maybe there are some experiments they can to do to look at chemistry and neural activity during peak experiences and you know i'm curious i probably will explore some of those i'm not prepared for that conversation today but it, it's it is interesting man i you know i remember playing football and you know i i, um, I remember uh i the ball was kicked up in the air and there was a player in front of me and he was taller than me and it looked like he was going to mark the ball and next thing i was standing on his shoulders and I'd gone up way too early and the ball hadn't arrived yet. So right. I, was, I was up there for a few seconds. Just hanging out. Yeah, just hanging there. And he didn't buckle. So, And then the ball's drifted out in the wind. I've just kind of taken my right arm out, you know, almost at the 
my maximum reach and just pulled in this one-handed, you know, what they call them a specky, like this, this mark. And the interesting, because I can still recall that, I, I didn't land gracefully at all. Like, I couldn't even kick the ball, I landed so hard. But there was a moment of that I can still feel as I talk about it, uh, everything slows down. Mm. And it's beyond me. Like, I couldn't do that... If I'd trained 100 times to do that at training, I wouldn't have been able to do that. But in that moment, something else became possible mm. that maybe before that was impossible. And so I like that way of looking at it. And so it's maybe that's at the individual micro level. Yeah. But at the macro level of life on the planet, life's always pushing for new possibility. Yeah. And so it's, it's probably bigger than us. Yeah, that's it. I love it. And, and as you said, that reaching out, on the shoulders of the giant in front of you and grabbing the ball, you know, clearly that became a reference point, which either consciously or subconsciously is, is in you now. And I, and I don't know how you draw on that, but I would imagine that moment has informed other moments in your life where, where something felt out of reach or something was, you know, I, I don't know, but I, I, I can just say from my own experience, I can, there's, you know, there'd be like a string of, little micro moments like that in my existence that when I'm, when I'm, when I've hit the edge of my comfort zone and I'm looking for some reference point, I can go, Oh, this feels a little bit like that moment. And that moment opened up in a way that, that worked out <laughs> or that moment opened up in a way that I couldn't have imagined or, and, and so it's, it's like when we have these little peak moments, they give us little pearls to call on when we need to later. I would call that pearl that I got from that moment, anything is possible. Hmm. That was what I realised in that moment. And I live my life that way. Even when things look like they're really going to shit, I'm like optimistic, positive and confident that everything's going to be okay because I believe in an infinite universe. Hmm. Not only is anything possible, but everything's possible. Hmm. And so, so, yeah, I didn't realise the pearl that I got from that now that, you know, you, I went there and looked at it. And so that is a part of my nature is that anything's possible. And it keeps me, it keeps me, keeps me moving forward towards new possibility. And so you are a facilitator of possibility. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what you meant by that when I was introducing you as that, but it's starting to become real clear. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, so I wanted to just switch a little bit from performance to leadership. And um, I guess how I crafted this question was, where have, where have all the leaders gone? And that would be making it about individuals or where has leadership gone? And this is only my own personal opinion. I look around at Australian... And I don't want to get too political, but I'm looking more in, at, at that level of national government, bureaucratic... Um, because we vote these people in, we give them power, we, we put them in the position of leadership... And then we're either happy or disappointed. And I would say from my own personal perspective, when I look around, I'm, I'm pretty much disappointed in the level of leadership that's currently around. And there are a few examples that are exceptions to that rule. And so I guess I'm, I'm honing in on really, I guess, the definition of leadership. And the one definition that sticks in my mind is the one I got from Simon Sinek who talks about leadership and he said that the leader isn't the man in charge but the person who's willing to take responsibility for the people under their charge. Hmm. And so I don't know if everybody's aware of that distinction and 
I've been called a leader at different times. Um, I'll share this real briefly because it, it kind of it's out a bit out of the blue. So I went to an all boys Catholic school, and um, we have a ten year reunion every ten years. And um, a few years back, I went back for the forty year reunion, and I bumped into a guy I hadn't seen since I was seventeen. I was fifty seven at the time, and him and another couple of classmates were sitting down having a chat over a beer. And this guy, Steve, he commented, he says, Pete, you know, we always saw you as the spiritual leader in the class. And like, it kind of like came out of blue. I'm like, mm. what? Spiritual leader? What are you talking about? He says, no, we all knew. We talked about it. We didn't talk about it to you at the time. But we were like, there's something about that, Pete, like he's a spiritual leader, mm. which is a funny thing to be told 40 years after the fact. And like, I was completely disobedient. I was the class clown. I was the provocateur, the dis- disruptive one. I was the one always in f- at the front of the class in front of all the kids being belted with a leather strap by the teacher for my disruptive behaviour. But something, it galvanised something in my classmates. I don't know if that's what they saw as spiritual leadership, but I was certainly someone who was willing to stand up to what I saw as tyranny hmm. and like these rules that don't make sense. That we've got to sit still for 45 minutes and shut up and... We're just kids who want to just interact and have fun. And so I always push that, push the buttons. And um, so I'm not saying I'm a spiritual leader. That's I, I, I think you would be arrogant to call yourself that. But if people want to call me that, then I'm just curious about what they were pointing to. And so, and I certainly didn't feel like I was responsible for those, my, my classmates. Mm-hmm. I, I did a little bit because I felt like I was responsible for lightening the mood in the room because the mood was often quite you know, strict and, you know, if you step out of line, you're going to get punished. I'm like, screw that. I'm going to, you know, bring some lightheartedness to the room. <laughs> and so anyway, that's a bit of a segue. Um, so going back to, to leadership, uh, I'd like to um, tease out a definition of leadership. Well, not even, it doesn't have to be a definition. It can be, it doesn't have to be linear. It can be, yeah. Um, so what would you like to say about leadership and what's your view on current world leaders. You don't have to go to the political part of it if you want, but what may be missing in in some leaders that they can't see? Mm. First of all, I do see you as a spiritual leader. And I think the public flogging <laughs> we could see as a pattern amongst other s- spiritual leaders. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, don't crucify me, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> It was interesting when you were talking, I didn't know where you were going to go with the question. I'm still not sure exactly where we went with the question, but I, I loved uh, your listening to you and what, um, as you were talking about, um, I think one of the definitions of leadership that you'd heard previously, what I was found myself in my mind thinking was um, the leader isn't, isn't a person. It's not the, that guy or the person that's below that guy but is responsible it's it's actually it's a archetype it's a part of each of us i would say that comes alive when we are deeply connected to purpose when we're really clear about about either what's important or why it's important in a way that it's like overflowing in who we are so when 
when, 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 when you think about moments in your life when, you know, right back to the school days, but in current life where a moment is unfolding and a part of you wakes up that's so clear about what needs to happen next or, or what needs to, you know, shift or, you know, and, and it might not be like, you might not even know the answer, but you just know something has to shift and, and the force in you is so strong that you can't hold it back. I would say that's like the seed of leadership that actually is, is alive in, in, in all of us. And, uh, when I see leadership show up in, in an organization or a team, it, that's, it's often born in that way. Like someone will be so dissatisfied with, with something the way it is, or they'll have such a strong um, inspiration about something or an idea that moves them so that they suddenly can't, they have no choice but to speak about it passionately or to move in the direction of it and to kind of take responsibility of it or to bring people with them. That's the quality like I look for. And oftentimes in the teams that I work with, I'll, I'll, they'll, they'll be the official leaders and they'll be the managers on the organization chart. And I'm always interested in that. And I find myself as I get into the team and organization, I'm, I'm, I've always got my lens open to where are the natural, where is, where is leadership waking up? And where are the people that are like feeling called to this moment or this part of the journey of that company or whatever it is? And, and wow, if we get behind that person or if we draw that person out, it doesn't matter whether they're the CEO or whether they're an executive assistant or whether they just arrived and, you know, like from a different company and they just don't even, they're just an intern. If they've got something that's lit up inside of them, there's energy there that can impact and galvanize the energy of lots of people. And so I'm always like, that's, a, that's like an antenna that I was, is for me is, is turned on high at certainly at certain parts of the time that I work with teams. You didn't need to understand the question to give the answer <laughs> I was looking for. <laughs> so what I, what I heard you say is, um, so it's situational and circumstantial. Sometimes certain types of circumstances call forth the spirit of leadership that is maybe in all of us and at different individuals at different times and that it's, it's, no, it's not a person, it's an energy or something that is a call for leadership to show itself mm. or the spirit of leadership to emerge in any individual. It could be the, the janitor could show up as the leader in, in any moment. 100%. I've, seen, I've witnessed that happen, actually happen before. And so it's almost like it's not, it's not a quality, it's not something you learn, it's not something you're born with. It's not even particular to the being of the person. It's a spirit of leadership that can be awakened in any individual when circumstances or situations call upon it. And like, I think so. That's, yeah. I mean, I, I, did, I hadn't thought about it before I said it, mm. and that's what... If I'm if I'm honest and I really think about the, the even the leaders that I admire the most that I would say oh that person is a beautiful leader or really you know like a stunning leader what I reckon what I, one of the things I love about them is that you know if if that person's sitting in a circle of other leaders and other people on their team um, 
they there's moments when they are in the middle of that circle when they're when they're really holding the the energy and the intention of the whole group and what they're sharing is so clear and so needed that you think wow this is, would not be a circle without them but then there's also moments when they when they step back and they're in the circle and they create space or draw out someone else that they see is it's their it's their moment to be in that space and and it's not it doesn't always just happen like individually but that was just a picture that popped in my mind as you as you as we were talking so my sense is there are certainly people who that uh i guess the the willingness to allow that fire to burn brightly and to move with it is more stronger in this life right so there's certain people who 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 feel that uh, calling in more often or, or or move in that way and then I think when we when we're work with a team often and a team exp, you know so oftentimes there's you know there's people that will naturally become the leader of that group the spiritual leader of those school kids you know it, it, I think we can kind of inhabit that but I don't think it's a static thing mm. and I certainly know of the leaders that I love and admire most the ones that are seen as leaders the longest and most frequently are also constantly evolving as a, as an individual. So they're not like, Oh, I'm the manager. Now I'm going to stop my growth as a person and just, you know, just shower these humans with all of my experience. You know, they're always on their own edge, always humble, always listening, leaning in the eternal student. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded of also, I, I see this with um, genius. I think genius and and leadership have something in common is that genius isn't something that's attributed to a person and if you take it a word back it's actually genie and when there's when there's genius happening in the room it's happening through a particular individual but it's the genie the spirit of genius that's in the room that's moving through any particular person and so you know, I have my own kind of way of understanding genius or intelligence or whatever, and I'm admi- I admire certain people's apparent intelligence and genius. But I think that the genie in the room can move through anybody mm. if they're open to it. And and like when I saw a janitor in the emergency department calm down uh, a mental health client who was like so obnoxious and, and so worked up and so aggressive and like 12 different staff members tried to quiet that guy down. Mm. You know, the psychiatrist, the psych nurse, the, the emergency doctor, the emergency nurse, the social worker, everybody tried to quiet this guy down. And over a period of a couple of hours, and this guy was just, you know, he was on the warpath. And the janitor had been witnessing this whole thing take place and he's sweeping by with his broom and he, and he witnessed the whole thing. He's gone up to this crazy guy who looked like he was on crack or something and he whispered he didn't whisper because i heard him say it so loud enough to say he says hey mate if you don't like what you're thinking just change it and then he just kept sweeping and and this guy just in an instant normalized his crazy behavior and he was discharged about half an hour later wow. and so the genius in the room was the janitor or the genie was there was possibility for genie in the space and it came through the janitor not not the highest paid person in the room and so i guess i'm what i'm pointing out is this thing about leadership or genius that we attribute it to individuals 
and rather it's, a, it's just the field of possibility that it can awaken in any individual depending on circumstance. I, I, I love it. I totally agree. And I think our current state, if we're, you know, this is where the question started to be born from, if in the last few years we've noticed less and less leaders that we might relate to or uh, those that we just feel like, wow, you know, questioning wh- how they're there or, you know, why they're making that call. One of the gifts in it, certainly that I've experienced, is it's pushing more and more uh, for me to become clear about what I see is true and what I need to do to, you know, and what I feel compelled around. And so it's, it's calling on the leader in me. And you can see how the, you know, we are looking at, you know, it's like we're looking at some idea of the leaders that we think should be fixing things and our, and, and our, the pain is in this kind of like a letdown of expectation. But ultimately, I think it's ultimately bringing us back to the realization that, well, actually, if I want it different, uh, it needs to start here (laughs) and I need to feel so committed to having it be different that even if it's only different here in my living room, this is going to be different here. And then even if it's only different here in my yard or my garden or my neighborhood, we're going to, you know, we're going to make it do, we're going to make things different here. And so I think there's ultimately a gift here, right? It's, 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 it's pulling on the leader in all of us. Love it. And so it's such a dynamic conversation for me because what I just saw for myself is that I was just projecting the lack of leadership out externally and, and attaching it, you know, through psychological projection. And, you know, I'm fascinated by shadow work and, and my shadow is my blind spots and the things I can't see about myself. And we tend to project our shadow out onto others. Mm. And that brings it back to, like, I'm seeing the lack of leadership out there, but maybe it's pointing to, well, what about the lack of leadership in me? Is there a lack of leadership in me? And if so, where? And that I would be better off, rather than projecting that out onto prime minister or president or whoever, withdraw that projection and say, where where can I show up as the, the type of leadership that I'm looking for external to myself? And what is that? What are these times calling forth in me? And um, the other thing we have in common too. So we both. Um, I looked at your website and you talk about the hero's journey. Mm. I'm a big fan of the archetypal story of the hero's journey. So it awesome. underpins everything about humanity. And, so awesome. And the, the, the call to adventure. And, and we've talked about this call to adventure and you had it, you know, in sport and I had it in sport and, and you know, it, it, that's part of stepping up into leadership is well, there's this call to adventure. Am I going to follow that call or ignore it? And then, then there becomes the ordeal and the challenge and the innermost cave. And I just think it's a fascinating archetypal story and uh, it's certainly impacted my life and I think my nature or temperament is more often than not I'll step up and follow that call to adventure rather than ignore it although I've ignored it at times in my life and just leave, lived a hedonistic lifestyle. Um, so I'd like to go somewhere a little sideways. Um, so uh, I'm where I'm wanting to show leadership at the moment in my life is I'm fascinated by this concept of integrating the shadow, the hidden parts of self. And this is somewhere where I do feel that I have an opportunity and possibility to step into a leadership role with this. Mm. And I'm 
I'm answering that call to adventure of leading a conversation around integrating shadow. There's other people out there also doing that as well. And so the people that are doing that, we're leading that conversation and I'm part of that leadership group, I guess. And so um, we all have a shadow. Now, what's, what's impressed me in, in uh, the time that I've known you is you just strike me as this like sweet, um, positive, charismatic, um, light-beaming uh, human that I'm gravitated towards. Like that's how you occur to me. And I'm like, I know there's a shadow in there, right? <laughs> and so I guess um, I'm not going to go digging for your shadow. It's not, it's not what this is about. But I, I guess I would like you to bring some balance maybe to my view of you and that would you be willing to share something possible, something dark or something, it doesn't have to even be dark, something that was hidden about you, that you had to go through that dark night of the soul or into the innermost cave to find some hidden thing that was uncomfortable to face and challenge and that you went there and overcame that. And Or you could speak to, well, yeah, I've got sh- shitloads of stuff about me that's dark and shadowy and <laughs> I can name half a dozen tablets. Or <laughs> so go where you want with it. Please share something from your shadow. Amazing. Amazing. Um, so I, first maybe a really quick story. I was thinking about this this morning and the, the beautiful work that you do as a spiritual leader in the shadow boxing space. And I, I did this uh, like a three-day, so like a self-imposed, it wasn't a retreat, but I went um, to spend time in this cave uh, for three days in New Zealand, um, several, many many years ago, I, and, I, and I wasn't sure exactly why, but I felt like I needed to go there while it was dark and spend like the pre-light time and in this cave, and it was a time of like deep reflection for me. and And I was going through some some challenges of different levels, and it was really interesting because the uh, I won't go into a big long story, but the first day. I, I kind of like danced around the edges of the shadows and um, and I noticed I could stand in the like lit part of the cave and but if I was standing in the lit part of the cave, I couldn't see in the shadows at all, right? And I was like, wow, that's interesting. It's so dark in there. And and then the second day, I I I thought I need to go into the dark place where I can't really see. And what I noticed when I went in there, which was really cool, which I didn't, I wouldn't have foresaw and was that when I stepped into the shadowy part, um, I could see both all the shadowy parts and the light part, right? So that was, that was like, oh, <laughs> this is cool. Okay, well, this is like, suddenly my, my perspective is, and, and then on the third day, I, um, I, there was this part of the cave that was really deep and I was really scared to go in there because he had to crawl under like a really low ceiling and I didn't know what, was back there but i felt like there was like a room or something and and i i don't know why but i felt like i had to go there and so on the third day i i got there early and i and i crawled through there and and i was so scared like i was so scared and i i was like sure that there was dead bodies and what like i there was no it was so dark i couldn't there was no way i could i could kind of acclimate my 
my eyes to it. And so I just got back there and I was like, I can just remember the, the, like the adrenaline was just pumping in me. And then I just, I, I don't know why, but I just started taking deep breaths and, and I just, I just let myself sit there and kind of allow myself to be there in what felt really uncomfortable. And over a few minutes, my heart rate slowed down and, and it didn't get any lighter, but it was just like all of a sudden I felt, all of a sudden I felt like really, really held there. Like, oh, this, like, this is beautiful in here. It's so dark. There's nothing, just nothing distracting my, my vision here at all. And I felt like a real sense of like a c- comfort and, and it was one of these sort of cosmic moments where that, like right when I was having that thought that kind of like the sun must have started coming out on the horizon and like a little like beam kind of like went, you know, like kind of like made it into the, into the cave and enough that I could figure out how to get out. And it was sort of like, for me, it was, it was, a it was one of my takeaways was, you know, kind of my willingness to go into those spaces where I fear the most to go and just to breathe there and to, and to be there was also the key to always being able to find my way out, you know, and, 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 um, and kind of when I left, I felt this, like, just, I was in love with that dark space and I had a totally different view of it like I realized I'd made it this like bad thing this evil place this you know that the shadow was like was like yeah like the I don't know like the forbidden realm or something but I realized it was like it was pristine and it was like there was a magic power there that that I was probably denying in in myself in you know trying to stay uh, um you know always out in the light areas (laughs) right so that's a um long story to just say that I, I, I would say my, my experience with my own shadow oftentimes comes, has come historically, like for an example with, with big injuries, like, like historically, I, I think my, um, I didn't go into those places unless life like forced me into them. And, um, and, but then always when I look, I see there was, there's always been gifts there, like deep, you know, magical gifts that ultimately illuminate whatever comes next. So you can be pushed into your shadow or you can choose it voluntarily. So the injuries kind of force you to face some dark nights of the soul. But with the cave, you volunteered for that. And, and you went into the metaphorical archetypal innermost cave. I mean, I know you were in New Zealand, so there wasn't going to be a bear in yeah, there that could tear your head <laughs> no, off. Right. I'm not sure if they even have any A-type, uh, apex predators. Anything, no. <laughs> Maybe a kiwi might have pecked you to death. But there was still the fear of the darkness. And, and you know, because you couldn't see, you have to feel around with you. And, you know, and that would have been scary. But you, you were aware of the acute sense of fear. But, and that's a call to adventure, to, to voluntarily go into the dark places and you chose to respond to that call. And that's what I ask people to do when, when mm-hmm. they come on and do my shadow boxing course. You know, it's one thing to have life, 
you know, hurl you into your shadows, whether, you know, it's a divorce or a, an illness or your company collapses and all of a sudden you're facing the dark night of your soul. So that it can happen spontaneously. But in my shadow course, I actually invite people to come and look into those dark places because, as you said, like what's on the other side can be just bliss. Mm. And it's interesting because I've heard that, I've heard different conversations about the abyss and one is that there's nothing there and, and when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back at you and, and that can be, you know, not a good idea. But there's another concept that I've heard of which is that the dark is the feminine and that that black empty space is fertile, rich with possibility and creativity and it's the feminine, the mother, the, the, the matrix from which all, the wellspring from which all things come. And, you know, matrix, M-A-T, is mat or maternal, is mother. And so it's a feminine, the dark space for those of you who are scared of it could possibly be the, the mother nurturing energy that has for you the gifts that you're looking for, but you're not going to encounter them unless you're willing to face your fears and go into the dark. And Jung says, you know, the way to the light is through the dark. And so I love that. I mean, I didn't say it, but as I was describing the kind of feeling of nurture that I felt deep in there, it was I, it was like I was in a womb. Yeah. And I was like, oh man, I could sit here for days, you know? And yeah, so you described space. it. Yeah. Yeah, in the indigenous culture, uh, there's a cave up here, up on um, Coonam Range, and men aren't supposed to go there, and it's a cave, and it's women's business only. And uh, the Aboriginal women would go there and do women's business, which I'm not, I can't speak of because it's women's business, but that, that cave does represent the womb, you know, the source of all creation as far as humans are concerned. Um, okay, so I guess we've got a little bit more time. Go but just, I, yeah. I'm just, you, you're just uh, like a, a practical example um, that just sprang to mind, which might be helpful uh, and it's helping me because I'm thinking about it. I think in a very day-to-day life way, because so much of my work is moving is is uh yeah moving in the direction of possibility sometimes uh, historically i could have a resistance to going into the the things that are blocking right or going into the like a, a more um yeah more sensitive conversation with someone or, or even a, you know, like it's a, a, if there's a conflict with someone that I'm working with, that a lot of times I've known, you know, that by moving, if we, if we line on where we're moving towards, that will lift us out of a lot of our own blocked spaces. And this I know to be true. And what I've, in terms of my own willingness to go into the places I feel afraid, you know, I think conflict and kind of um, bringing up a topic or something where um, I might upset somebody or I might offend somebody or they might, you know, whatever I've noticed is a place where like I, you know, I will sometimes sit on the edge of, but what I notice is when I'm willing to do that and to trust, like like to follow, oh, there's a bit of edge here in the conversation. Rather than lean away from it, I'm going to go right in. Mm. It, it ultimately arrives to the similar place as I described with the with the womb, that it, it it might not be comfortable to go in there, 
but then it unlocks a whole bunch of energy in the conversation or the dynamic of, of the person, you know? So if it's a difficult conversation and even that I need to have with my son or something, and I might just say, Oh, we don't need to have that conversation for a while. And I'll just like, like I'll just try to move in the direction of the light. But then when we do need to have that conversation, if, if, if I just lean into it humbly and, and crawl back in the cave there, always it's a, a massive unlock of, of energy. So just, that was just kind of springing up for me while you were talking. Yeah. And what I make of that is that, you know, uh, you might, we, we face obstacles in life and one of those obstacles might be fear. And then that if we put our focus on just on the fear, then that might stop us. But if we remember that, oh, the fear is just in the way of something, or I'm actually moving to, to, to have simultaneously your attention on the fear, the obstacle, but also your attention on the goal. Mm. So to be able to hold two at the same time is, yes, there is this obstacle, this conflict, but I'm also got my not eye just on the... If I just have my eye on the conflict or on the fear, I might get stopped. But if I can also hold my vision for what's beyond the fear, then I can continue to move beyond the fear, beyond the conflict to, to that side. I love it. Mm. And I think, it's, I think it's a, it goes back to our conversation around getting comfortable with being uncomfortable that if, if, if my movements or the way I'm connecting with you, even if it's uncomfortable is in service of something that I, or we are committed to. And my, my, my compass is on that. It's not on, Oh, we need to address this issue because I just want to undress it because it's an issue. But it's, if we're moving in the direction of something together and a block comes up, then then diving into it at whatever depth is needed is 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 like ultimately in service of where we're moving together. So I think that's that's that helps. And um, now that you bring that up, in the moment I saw that what came up for me were the words human potential. Because you said like if we're moving together towards something that we share, the shared vision, I thought, well, what that be for you and I? What, what, what's the overlap, what do we have in common? And I think we both have a passion and interest for, from how I'm looking at it in human potential, like what's possible for humanity. And uh, maybe that's the thing that we're both in service to or something like that. I love it. Um, so we probably don't have a lot of time left because I know you're on a busy schedule. But um, one short thing to finish on, I want to go to your other passion, which is beekeeping. Sweet. And, and, Oh, sweet, yeah. You've brought a lot of sweetness into my life, including when you showed up this morning. Um, you brought two types of honeycomb, one that was uncapped, so the nectar was in there, but they hadn't capped the, the wax capping on it, so it, w- it wasn't yet honey, it was still in the nectar phase, and then some that had been freshly capped, so virgin honey or young honey, and I hadn't experienced either of those before. And when I put that first piece into my mouth of the uncapped nectar, it was just um, a bouquet of flowers. I, I don't know how else other to describe it. The myriad of different flavours that were exploding on my tongue uh, was, was fascinating. So, so you love bees. Um, you were really generous and moved one of your hives over to our property and you've introduced me to bees and I am already feel like I did with the whales, like there's a... There's a teacher-student disciplinary situation going on and I'm beginning to learn the basics about bees. Would you like to share one thing or something about bees? What's, what's one thread or maybe one that 
you've learnt from bees that you incorporate into your coaching or leadership stuff. Yeah, beautiful. I love it. And it fits, I mean, completely in with our conversation. Maybe this whole conversation was orchestrated by the bees as I look at your hexagonal light mm-hmm. fixture. Uh, so since I started beekeeping the the uh, very early on uh, a bee mentor told me watch out the bee the bees really get into you and 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 they they have uh, deeply as we went from one hive to I think we have 18 at the moment um, and the so their way of being and the way they organize themselves and the way that they purposefully move through their different roles during their four to six week life I have learned a ton from, and I'm I'm often bringing just naturally because I can't help it, sort of reflections and insight from the bees into the work I do with with leaders and teams, and and now a lot of my clients when they see me and they haven't seen me for a while they, they're interested in how I'm doing but usually their first or second question is how are the bees and did you bring any honey and you know that sort of thing, but one of the one of the lessons that certainly I've gained from them which is which uh i've experienced how powerfully this can help a team of people is to recognize there's something in the what i would call the you know a sense of purpose that bees have <clears throat> both individually and as a collective which is which is a lot that we can learn from and the bees that you know they live for four to six weeks not a long time uh except for the queen she lives five to seven years so this is a topic for a different conversation. But but so in that four to six weeks, really literally from the moment that they're born, they are working. They are like they have a job. And their job, it moves, it, it changes and evolves throughout the time. So they start out, their first job is they're cleaning their cell. They, they, they're born and then they clean out the, the, the cell, the, the wax cell that they were born in. And then they go and they start helping other baby bees clean out their cells and then a lot of them will become nurse bees feeding and nurturing bees that are being sort of incubated in egg form. And, you know, and then they, some of them become guards and some of them become air conditioners and some of them are, um, you know, building wax and some of them, um, you know, are drawing the comb or filling up gaps with propolis or, you know, there's all sorts of things. And then normally in the last sort of two weeks of their life, they become a forager in the last two weeks they're they're out gathering nectar and so it's like it's super like it's a wonderful combination of each bee you know in a, in a hive there might be 50 to eighty thousand bees right so it's a lot of little little living beings but each one has their own unique purpose like each one has their own job they are they are on purpose and simultaneously, they are completely connected to and in service of the whole. So their, their, their number one mission is always potential of humanity or whatever the, the, the term, you know, they're, they're looking, how do I serve the whole here uh, of the bees, you know, of this bee colony? And so they're always in service of that. And they're so tightly connected that they're, that in the bee world, but they call, there's a term they use called hive mind. Because the the bees, a colony of fifty to eighty thousand bees, really moves like one organism, and there and you really see this when they swarm. There, there, there's thousands of them, but they're all they're all connected to the same impulse or intention, 
And I think there's something really beautiful about that parallel of being both very individual. Each, each one is playing their unique part and each one is simultaneously totally part of the whole. And that balance I feel like is, 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 is something that's really needed not only inside of businesses or organizations, but like in the planet at the moment, you know, right? So we can, we talk about unity and we talk about wanting to, you know, be more connected as a human race. But part of that is also each of us being totally connected with our part and knowing that our part might evolve day to day, but that there's this like simultaneous um, requirement of me showing up and doing my part and doing it in concert with the, the 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 greater whole, so that's that's a, that's a piece around purpose, which has really like rung strong in me uh, a, a lot, and and in, and in a lot of the work I do. I knew my mind would be blown today. Um, so, and I spoke about the genie, the spirit of genie in the room, and I want to just wrap up with that. I want to acknowledge the genie in the room that expressed itself through this humble beekeeper chip richards thanks so much chip for coming on the show i could talk for another two hours but i know you've got commitments and i probably do too so uh hopefully this won't be our, our last uh conversation i'm sure it won't, won't be um deep deep gratitude for for showing up today and, and sharing some of the lessons you've learned from the whales the bees and from the innermost cave Thanks, Pete. It has been a total honor and a total delight. And yeah, let's call this part one. Okay, great. <laughs> awesome. Pete Isaiah is an Australian trauma therapist and integration coach. You can find him at isaiahcoaching.com and connect with him on Instagram at isaiahcoaching. This podcast was produced by Quinika Davis, edited by Beck Isaiah and Luca Young, and the score was produced by Joshua Richards.